When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. She was a flower for the taking Her beauty cut just like a knife He was a banker from Macon Swore to love her all his life He bought her a mansion on a mountain With a formal garden and a lot of land But paradise became her prison That Georgia banker was a jealous man You can see the fire in his eyes You'd say, I would walk through hell on Sunday To keep my goals in paradise He hired a man to tend the garden To keep an eye on her while he was gone some say they ran away together Some say that gardener left alone Now the banker is an old man That mansion's crumbling down Sits all day and stares at the garden Not a trace of her was ever found about her You can see the fire in his eyes He says I would walk through hell on Sunday To keep my rose in paradise Now there's a rose out in the garden Its beauty cuts just like a knife Say it even grows in the wintertime And blooms in the dead of the night
So, Rose in Paradise, this was Waylon Jennings' mm-hmm. last number one last number song one. before mm-hmm. he passed away. Yep. Tell me about the song. His version came out in 87. Uh, actually, he had the first version. It was cut a couple of times before that. Randy Howard cut it, but it never got out. And then uh, Toy Caldwell cut it. So it had been recorded twice, but never been released. That song, just from Waylon's version, is now almost 33 years old. And, Doug, there's rarely a week that goes by that somebody doesn't mention that song to me. It's just uh, I've never seen anything like it, even more so than Chattahoochee or anything else. Young songwriters, they said, man, that song's the one that made me want to want to come to town and be a songwriter. And I said, well, I'm going to pray for you because I don't, I don't want to be a part of you coming here and starving to death, you know. Hope you got a good plan. But Stuart Harris and I were supposed to write one day, and we got together at the April Blackwood office, and we couldn't think of anything to write, which happened sometime. And so uh, we started telling ghost stories. And I told him about this lady in the early 1800s that had lived in the county where I'm from. She had had five wealthy husbands, and they all died mysteriously. Back in those days, you didn't have CSI, and there was no FBI lab. So they tried to pin a couple of murders on her, but it didn't stick. But she had five wealthy husbands, and she was supposedly the most beautiful lady in the county, just the prettiest woman around. And, I mean, I know where they're—I've been to those guys' graves. They're buried out behind a big house that one of them built for that is burned down. But the graves— but the gravestones are still back behind the house. And they say at one time there were five nails in the entryway, and each one of them's hat was hanging on a nail. I, I don't know about that. But it's a great story anyway. That and, house and is so, haunted. That house is haunted. Oh, up, yeah. I had some friends <laughs> it burned who, down, the house did. Yeah, it did. It was haunted before it burned down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had some friends who uh, moved in, in there back in the 60s and— uh, I went to a, a New Year's Eve party there one time. And it's like this place is this place is spooky, you know. And they they told a few stories about things that happened. But then he started telling me some ghost stories from the Low Country, from South Carolina, where he was raised. And we did that for a while, and and then we went to lunch, and we came back, and neither one of us can remember where. It's like, well, let's let's write let's write a ghost song or whatever. Let's see what we can do. This story just kind of fell out over a couple of, of hours. We decided to leave it kind of ambiguous at the end. I'm an old Henry fan, and, and he was great with irony, you know, the Lady of the Tiger and the, the Gift of the Magi. One of us or both of us said, let's leave it where we, you don't really know what happened to her. Let's just leave it like that. And so that's what we did. And we took it in and played it for our song plugger, Judy Harris, and, and she's like, Ali, where'd you boys go to lunch, you know? She loved it, and we demoed it. I actually sang the demo on it. And then one day, Loretta Lynn came in with a guy that worked at MCA for Jimmy Bowen to listen to songs, Don Lanier. And she played Loretta some songs for pitching to her. And she said, Loretta, I know this song is, is not for you, but I want you to hear the song the boys wrote. She played Rose in Paradise. And Loretta went, oh, my Lord, you got to get that to Wayland." And I don't know if we just hadn't ever thought about that or not. You know, we really hadn't thought about it. She said, you've got to get that to Waylon. Why do you think Loretta Lynn thought that was a Waylon song at that point? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what made her say Waylon. 
I would love to ask her that But question. you all were like, that's a great idea? <laughs> yes, like, what do we think of that, you know? <laughs> Just the thought of getting a Waylon Jennings cut, we're like, yes, we'll hold it for a year, when normally you would not, you would not do that. It was kind of like when I wrote songs with Alan Jackson, they would say, do you want to do a demo on these? And I'm like, no, this guy's going to get a record deal. Don't worry about it. I want him to do them. Because the first time we sat down together, I thought, this guy can write and he can sing. So Don Lanier plays it for Waylon, and he said, man, he said, I, you know, I just finished that album. And he said, I'm done with it. But he said, if you'll tell those boys to put that song under a rock, I swear I will cut that song next year when I do my next album. Do you know how many times they tell us they're going to do something nah. and they don't? <laughs> if I had every cut, I'd been promised. Who's who's worse, the artist or the label or the you know oh, the, they, the it's publishing a, it's a conspiracy. house? Conspiracy, all, <laughs> all of them will tell all you it's them, the same yeah. promise that they're not going to keep. Huh? I had a song on hold one time for a year and a half, and then they didn't cut it. So what happens in a situation like that is an artist hears your song or their producer hears your song and says, don't play that for anybody else. So I want to cut that or I want my artist to cut that song. A good analogy would be if you sold bread and somebody or you sold uh, individual ceramics or something and they took one of your prized ceramics and said, take that one off the shelf so nobody else can see it and want to buy it. In other words, you take it off the shelf. It's not for sale anymore or not available if you're talking about a song. And so they may hold it for six months, and then they'll go in and cut an album, and you never heard anything. And it's like, oh, no, we decided to pass on that. Or they wait till uh, the time comes, and they go, no, we're not going to. We're not going to cut that song after you've taken it off the market. So thanks a lot for that. But that's just the way the music business works. And a thousand things can happen. From the time they hear that song and say, I love it, I'm going to record it, a thousand things can happen, and it doesn't get recorded. And any writer that's been here a while will tell you the same thing. It's happened. It happens to all of us. Yeah, art sometimes has no timetable. How do you know when a song is done? I just know. There's a, there's a seven-letter word that I despise, and it's called rewrite. <laughs> I despise that word. And so even from the beginning, I, I spent more time with them than anybody. I, you know, I'm not going to spend two weeks writing a song and play it for somebody who's never had a song recorded, and they tell me it's got all kind of mistakes. I don't want to hear that. I would play it for people that I respected their opinion, that I knew that they knew what a good song was or what a great song was and what a bad song was. Curly Putman was my first mentor and. And he said, man, turn that thing every way you can and, and make sure you got it the best you can you can get it. I tried to do that. I very seldom had a publisher tell me I needed to rewrite a line or something because I'd already spent hours with it. You know, they might, they might not have got a line at first. I'm like, wait a minute. I've spent two weeks with this song, and you just heard it for the first time. Listen to it again, and this time you shouldn't have to explain a song, but sometimes people don't get it right off the bat. And it's like, you listen to that another time or two, and you tell me if I need to change it. I, I, I very seldom had to do a rewrite because I edited and edited. Oh, I did it much slower. We wrote it much slower. But when Waylon got in the studio, they picked it up to where it is. We did not originally write it that fast. So now when I play it out, I have to try to play as fast as Waylon did, you know. I guess after Chattahoochee and Neon Rainbow's probably been my biggest Big song, I guess. 
Big song for Waylon, too. Yeah. Yeah, bless his heart. I'm glad I got to see him do it. And one of the coolest things, they wouldn't do a video on it. We were getting phone calls going, well, is she dead? Same thing I had before with Hoochie Coochie. Now I'm getting phone calls, and Stuart is too, going, well, did he kill her or what? And we're like, you know what? We don't know. Uh, she may be buried in a gardener. She might have left with a gardener. He might have killed them both. There's just all kind of possibilities. He might have hired a good-looking gardener just to tempt her. You know, we don't know. We just wrote the song. So we're getting all these phone calls, and it's like, man, we just we just don't know. And people talked about writing a screenplay, and nobody ever did. But they didn't do a video, which was kind of disappointing because videos were really big right there. Yeah, back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they were huge. And they said, if we do a video, we'll have to give it away. What happened to her? And I said, well, if you're creative enough, you won't. But anyway, they did not do it. So the coolest thing that happened after that, Chet Atkins did a Cinemax special called Certified Guitar Picker. And Waylon does Rose in Paradise on that show. Michael McDonald is playing piano. Terry McMillan's playing harmonica. Mark Knopfler's playing guitar. David Hungate's playing bass. Emmy Lou Harris and the Everly Brothers are singing harmony. That's a band from heaven. Yeah. Since we didn't have a video, that's pretty cool to that have. That is a pretty to have cool Emily video Harrison. to have. Yeah, and Mark Knopfler playing and um, Chet. You know, I mean, gee whiz. So anything else on Rose in Paradise by Waylon Jennings? You must have had a number one party. Did we talk about that? Yes, we did. We had, uh, you know, that's long about the time they started putting banners. I mean, country music exploded when Garth came along. Yeah. And Clint Black and... Oh, gosh, Vince finally hit and Trisha Yearwood. And every week it was just, it was some new artist. And they were all good. Some of them were great. And some of them were good, really good. The Joe Diffies that maybe didn't reach the, the heights that Alan and Garth did. But they had a big banner, you know, with our names on it on the tree building and the, and the bus stop uh, benches and stuff, you know. So it was it was pretty cool. I have to tell you this story. Garth is always so nice to me. I was with ASCAP when I first came to town. I was with BMI and then ASCAP right after I got to town. But Bob Doyle became Garth's manager. He was at ASCAP. He signed me. Fast forward to about 88, I guess. He becomes Garth's publisher manager. And so he calls me one day and he says, can you come down to the offices? And I said, yeah, I'll be down there in a while. So I go down and he said, I want you to listen to, to this. He played me this new guy named Garth Brooks. And one of the songs was If Tomorrow Never Comes, since you brought Ken up. Yeah. Uh, if Tomorrow Never Comes. And he played me a couple of other things. And he said, what do you think? And I said, gosh, I said, the songs are great. And I said, I really like his voice too. And he said, well, that's why I called you. You want to you want to write with him? I said, let me get my book. Let me call you back, Bob. I said, I'm writing a lot right now with this guy named Alan Jackson that I really believe in. We're we're writing a good bit, but I I'll, I'll get back to you. I didn't get back to him. I didn't get back to him. And the next thing I know, Garth Brooks is the biggest thing. <laughs> and he's world. never done one of your songs. No, <laughs> no, but. And and the same thing happened to Alan. I won't mention any writer's name, but there were some writers that didn't want to write with Alan, and he's never cut one of their songs either. So, you know, there's <laughs> yeah, that. Just but, but I got to tell you, man, Garth is always, he's never been anything. He, he knows I passed up the chance, 
to write with him, and I really wish I had, just to have one song with Garth Brooks. He has a special connection with the audience. You know, he he literally at the event the other night took, let everybody who wanted to take a selfie with him. And, yeah, my wife and, got a my wife got know. I got a great picture of her with Garth. Yeah. It yeah. was all the wives that wanted the picture with him. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, she said, don't you want, I said, I have a picture of me and Garth. <laughs> He's got his arm around me, you know, around my shoulder, and I got mine around his. I said, but uh, no, I've, I already have that. I did ask you if you have anything on the shelf and what voice you want to. You know, there's this new kid, and the chances of this happening are probably zero, but you never know. Nothing venture, nothing gained. He's a guy named Cody Johnson. He's one of the best voices. I remember the day I walked into the tape room at Tree Pubs and Company, which is Sony now, and I heard this voice, and I stopped in the middle of the room, and I said, oh, my goodness, who is that? And they said, it's a guy named Ronnie Dunn. He just won a Wrangler contest or something. And I went, wow, wow. Well, we know what happened there. You got that same feeling. I got that same feeling. I'd had that feeling just a few times. When I first met Travis Tritt, I thought, this guy, he's going to be a star. But even before that, I met Randy Travis about 1982, and we wrote a couple of things together. And uh, I thought, man, if this guy ever gets a chance. So in 87, he finally got a chance and sold four million albums or whatever. And uh, opened the door for the rest of the hillbillies. And uh, so I had that feeling with him. I had that feeling with Alan, Travis Tritt, and Trisha Yearwood. What uh, song would you like Cody to there's record? A, there's a song. There's a song that I had forgotten about in my catalog. And it's called How Far Do I Have to Go? I was going through my catalog the other night, and, and it's like, Man, I can't believe I forgot that song. But but once it starts moving away from there, these songs that would have worked in the 90s, you can't get those cut now. Well, that's why people like Bob McDill and others, it's like, you know what, I'm done. I don't write I don't write those type of songs, and they don't want what I'm but, writing. Yeah. But so, I mean, Bob told me that. He said, people, I, are, people are willing to take chances. And, yeah. And, I'm, you know, I think— And I know it changes. You know, the Internet— it has no barriers, and you don't have to, mm-hmm. you know, listen to what radio says on the internet. You can listen to whatever podcast you want. <laughs> and you know what's good about that is, uh, you don't have some guy sitting in an office somewhere figuring out what fifty radio stations are going to be playing that day. You can day. decide for yourself. I talked to a disc jockey. I met him Monday night, and he's from Canada. And he said, "Man." He said, it's just not right. He said, I, I'm old school. He came up back when they would get the records in, they'd play them. And if people called in, uh, they would continue to play them. And if they, if they didn't call in saying they liked them, then maybe they didn't play them anymore. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 